This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Tony Woodleaf is the uh, executive vice president at the State Policy Network and the author of this terrific new book. It's called I, Citizen, A Blueprint for Reclaiming America's Self-Governance. Kind enough to stay up late with us this evening. Tony, uh, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. It was a real treat to be able to meet you the other night. Hey, Frank. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited to be here. Uh, Tony, before I talk to you about the book, you had a column in the Washington Post a few weeks ago, which, I mean, it's pretty closely related to a lot of the themes that you touch upon in your book, in which you say, beware party bosses, the rise of the unaffiliated is coming for you. Uh, I think a lot of people might know that there are a lot of people that don't identify as either Democrat or Republican or don't register as Democrat or Republican. But what does that exactly mean for the party bosses? Why should the party bosses around the country be a little concerned at this rising number of unaffiliated voters? Well, it's, uh, you know, in any industry, if you see people leaving your product, um, you start to worry. Uh, but politicians don't seem to think that way. So we know now that um, 42 percent of Americans identify as independents. They don't take a party label. Um, that Those percentages are obscured in states with closed primaries like New York because, you know, you don't want to waste your vote, so you register with a party so you can vote in a primary. But that doesn't mean you're that excited about that party. So all these fights over redistricting that we've seen all assume that the way people voted in the last election is how they're going to vote in the next election. They assume that people are committed to one party or the other. But all the evidence tells us that's not true at all. Now, you, a big portion of your book deals with the freedoms that we as Americans are losing at the hands of the political elites, the political class, these unelected judges and these unelected bureaucrats. How does the political class take away our freedoms? What freedoms have Americans actually lost? Yeah, it's uh, one of the things we've seen over the last 10 years is that for every law that's passed by Congress, passed by the people that we elect to go to Washington to represent our interests, for every law that Congress passes, federal agencies create 28 rules that have the full force of law. And so what that tells us is most of the governing now out of D.C. is not done by people that we elected. And so it covers a lot of things. It covers, you know, what, what you can uh, your kids are going to be tested on. Uh, you know, where a cell tower can be placed in your community, you know, whether or not you and your local library can restrict access to pornography on the library's computers. None of these things are allowed. Uh, the people at the local level are not really allowed to make these decisions in our communities. They're made by judges and bureaucrats in Washington, D.C. So what are so give us an example of, um, you know, a freedom that used to be ver taken for granted by an individual American, but now is uh, dictated to them by some bureaucrat in D.C.? Oh, sure. So if you look at a lot of, for example, um, what our kids are taught in schools, you know, once uh, a state or a community begins receiving federal dollars, they're on the hook to follow the rules that the feds create. 
And if you, you know, once you're, you're used to getting that money, you don't want to give it up. And so an extreme example was during the pandemic we saw uh, in your own state of New York, just the, the terrible practice um, the governor had of pushing um, elderly people uh, back into nursing homes mm. among the most vulnerable New Yorkers. And uh, part of that was this this notion that it's required by federal law, by the federal bureaucracy that oversees Medicare and Medicaid. We saw the same thing in Michigan. Um, and then, of course, you, you, the governor at the time, as we all know now, covered up the resulting deaths. But you see a lot of pressure like that exerted over schools, over nursing homes, over hospitals, because uh, states receive a third or more of their budgets from federal agencies. And so the federal agencies get to call the tune about how those dollars are spent. A lot of your book, and we're talking with Tony Woodleaf, if you're just tuning in, he's the author of the book I, Citizen, a a blueprint for reclaiming American self-governance. It, a lot of your book deals with dispelling the notion that uh, we're all we're on the verge of civil war and we're all ready to kill each other. Um, explain to the folks listening the, how divided America is right now and why maybe we're not as divided as the media perceive us to be. Yeah, that's that to me, Frank, was one of the most important um, reasons I had in writing the book, because. You know, what we hear from the left and the right, from pundits, is that we're uh, bitterly divided right down the middle in America, Team Red versus Team Blue, and we hate each other more and more. The reality is when you go to reliable survey data, uh, what you find is most Americans are not that invested in a political party. Like like I said, most Americans identify as independent. Only about 9% of Americans will describe themselves as extremely liberal or extremely conservative. If you look at what think about issues like immigration or crime or taxes or welfare, they're pretty much clustered in the middle. And we see that when we just look at, say, take a a, a typically red congressional district, one that votes Republican again and again, compare that to a blue congressional district, uh, you'll find that on most issues, the people in those districts, you can't tell them apart. They're not that divided on most issues. And so we have the picture we get from pundits which is that we're bitterly divided, far apart from each other. But all the data, when you ask Americans themselves, shows that Democrats and Republicans aren't that far apart on things, and they don't hate each other. So it's, it's a story that serves the pundits, right, because that's their excuse to just govern from D.C., because the narrative is, well, we've got to stop the other side. Um, but the truth is most Americans would rather compromise and govern together. So um, why do... Why does the media portray the country as starkly divided if your anecdotal observations don't, um, you know, don't reflect that and the polling data doesn't reflect that? Right. I think part of it is it's a great narrative and, uh, you know, it sells. Right. If you, so if you look at um, it, there's been some great studies in the media, we see that a, a, a typical way that a journalist will write a story about America politics and polarization is you do what's called the man in the street interview. You go find a couple people and you ask their opinions about politics. Well, there's some really good empirical data that shows that these so-called men and women in the street are extreme examples. They're not really from the center. And so it sells, you know, the idea of conflict sells. Uh, It certainly animates activists and donors for the political parties. And I think it also excuses for politicians. It makes it so that they don't have to subject things to a vote 
because it created this impression that the other side is about to impose socialism or fascism on us. And so that excuses the extreme actions to stop that so-called other side. So it, serve, it sells papers, it gets eyes on you know, cable stations, and it allows politicians to circumvent the democratic process, which has always been about compromise. So the media wins uh, by uh, getting their audience revved up in by playing into this professional wrestling narrative of of politics. The politicians win and they get to raise a lot of money by getting the audience revved up. And the, the only losers are people that actually want to move forward as Americans and see real progress. That's right. And I think the, the other part of it is, while I, I, you know, in my book, I talk about how most Americans are not animated by this kind of hatred. The percentage of Americans who are engulfed in that kind of partisan hatred, it is growing. And that serves the politicians because, you know, if you can motivate your voters simply by their hatred of the other side, you don't have to deliver as much, right, because they're driven by their anger. And so it's, a, it's kind of a smokescreen for politicians who don't have much to offer. And so that, to me, is the real danger, is that they bring more regular people into this belief that we're in, in, on the verge of civil war. They could actually bring it about. And so that's what you know, I'm trying to get the message out, that you know, your neighbor is not your enemy. The political class in Washington, D.C. is your enemy. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Uh, the book is I, Citizen, a Blueprint for Reclaiming American Self-Governance. So let's look at the blueprint. How do we reclaim American self-governance? What is the first step? Well, you know, what I talk about in the book, I didn't want to wave a magic wand as much as I wish I had one. Um, so I just I start with the thing that any one of us has the most control over, which is our own heart. And so I suggest that, you know, you get to know your neighbor and learn to love your neighbor. Um, doesn't mean you have to like them, but, you know, love is action. So so get to know your neighbor uh, and get to know people in your community. And the reason I say that is not because I think, you know, everybody should, you know, have a campfire and sing Kumbaya. It's because when we get to know the people around us who are different than us, inoculates us against the message that we get relentlessly from the media and from political parties that our neighbors are our enemies. So we start there. And then I encourage, like you were just doing before I came on here, I heard you encouraging your listeners to think about running for office. And I think that's a good step. The data shows that the political parties right now discourage regular people from running for office, and they recruit the most extreme people from our society to run. And so one of the things we can do is just start running for local office again. And then I recommend strongly, uh, you know, that you invest in state-based groups that are holding your public officials accountable, like the, you know, the Empire Center in, in New York that did a lot of work to expose what Andrew Cuomo was up to, uh, hiding data about his decisions around nursing. So that's just a few of the things. But mostly it's get to know your neighbors and get engaged because this is your country, right? It's not their country. It's not the D.C.'s country. It's our country. We the people. So we have a responsibility to act that out. 
A lot of your your premise is that um, decision making is better done on a state and a local level than it is done in D.C. And on the surface, that that makes sense because you'd think people in New York City are in a better position to know the needs of folks in New York City than a bureaucrat in Washington that's never been to New York City. Same with Sheboygan or Chicago or upstate New York or wherever. But uh, we see this in New York State where we notoriously had the least functional legislature in the whole country. There are a lot of state governments and state legislatures that are just as screwed up as any Washington bureaucracy or as any uh, congressional uh, subcommittee. Why is moving power to the states necessarily better when a lot of state governments don't seem to be functioning all that well either? Well, I think what we see, the record is that most state legislatures are more functional than Congress. They're just as polarized, but they still get along better, in part because the rules that they have to operate under, like they have to have a balanced budget, require the compromise that Congress can get away with without um, you know, doing. So there's still a pretty good track record for most state legislatures. And I think, too, there's a there's a, um, a reason to push decision making even further down below states into counties and cities. But the bottom line is, even if you're in a dysfunctional state, you have a lot more opportunity to make a difference there than you do trying to change Congress and change these you know hopelessly corrupt Washington, mm. D.C. institutions. So I think you still got to start local. And the last thing on that is the who end up in Washington in Congress, they're mostly recruited from state legislatures. And those people are mostly recruited from local government. So if you want to institute that change, you start local. And if enough of us get involved, well, then eventually we change the composition of Congress itself and we get workhorses there instead of show horses. You cite uh, Robert Putnam in your book, and I've uh, I've talked about him and his work on this show before and uh, even interviewed him uh, a couple of years ago. And, uh, you know, his book, Bowling Alone, seems so much worse uh, today than when he wrote it 20 years ago. I think if he were to write that book today, he would be calling it uh, bowling virtually alone because we don't even go to a bowling alley where there's nobody. You go to a computer screen and and bowl by yourself. Um, How much of the problem that you and he both talk about not having rotary clubs and churches and fraternal organizations and Kiwanis clubs and groups where people actually interact with one another, in addition to a political problem, which allows these divi- these um, seeds of division to be sowed even dipper- deeper, how much of that is also a societal problem? Well, Frank, I think that is a part of it. I mean, Putnam is very wise in that regard. When we have these other elements that contribute to our identity as humans. You know, you're, you're a uh, member of a certain church, you're a parent, you uh, go to a certain school, you have a certain kind of occupation, you live in a certain neighborhood. Those things that inform our identity, they bind us to one another across the political divide. But when those things matter less and less, well, politics is a cheap substitute. And the political parties have sorted themselves that, you know, there's no pro-choice people in the Republican camp. There's no pro-gun people in the Democrat camp. So there's, they're, they're completely opposite. And so we've lost cross-cutting um, bound, uh, you know, uh, things that bind us together. So I think that's a big part of the challenge. And so that's why I say in the book, 
you could start by getting to know your neighbor. I mean, it seems like a little bitty thing, but if enough of us do that, really get engaged in our communities, it's like an inoculation because this partisan ideology is like a sickness mm. and it infects people. So we've got to inoculate ourselves by getting to know our neighbors again. Absolutely. You also deal a little bit with the importance of supporting local journalism, newspapers and the like. Why is that so important? Well, I think, it. you know, again, you've got it's cheap and easy for national media, right? They want to cut their costs. So this kind of stuff, these polarization studies and cheap surveys are unreliable. That's just sort of their stock and trade. Uh, they cut costs. And so they only see that kind of national picture. But what's really going on in your community is the stuff you can have an impact on. So if you think about it this way, if most of the news you get is about what's going on in Washington, well, you can't do anything about that. So you sit there and you just rage at your TV screen, right? And you feel impotent as a citizen. But if you're getting real information about what's going on in your community, how the school is spending the money, you know, whether the garbage is being picked up or not, whether the city council is behaving and doing their job or not, well, doggone it, you can do something about that. But you need that local coverage in order to be informed. So I encourage everybody, even if it's not the best paper, subscribe to a local newspaper. And if they're not good, start complaining, you know, and help them get better. But that local journalism is how we, you know, get the information we need to be good citizens. What is an important political reform that can be made? You know, I've talked about a lot of different political reforms on the show, and you deal with a couple of them in your book. But if there was one thing that was going to make government function better, whether it's term limits, whether it's same-day voter registration, whether it's open primaries, whether it's uh, nonpartisan redistricting. If you were to pick the most important political reform that could improve the process of governing in this country, what would you pick? You know, I'm going to make some of my conservative friends mad, but um, I would restrict the amount of money that can flow into a political district from people who don't live there. Right. So so if you live in Iowa, you have no business with what the people in Colorado choose to do in terms of who they elect. And we see right now that the most extreme members of Congress get most of their funding from people who don't even live in the communities they claim to represent. So that right there would be just one thing I would I would give a try if it made a difference. Uh, Tony, you are also, and I'll end with this, and I hope you'll come back soon, and we'll talk about uh, a lot of the other issues that uh, you cover in your book, but you're also the founder of something called Intentional Fathering. Now, I am uh, a new father of a a five-and-a-half-month-old, and and, uh, I'm wondering, what advice can you give for me or maybe listeners that are similarly situated who find themselves being a father for the first time, particularly people like me who may work odd hours or have uh, a seemingly really demanding job about um, what should I keep in mind specifically and what should fathers keep in mind in general? You know, that's, it's a great question, and I, I put that together, that website and other material, um, not from a position of thinking I'm great at it. Um, I just I have six sons, and I felt like I, I always need to improve. But I think the most important thing is, um, you know, your children know when you disapprove. I think especially we men, we belabor uh, what we're not happy about. We feel like we've got to get it through their thick heads so they'll finally learn. But the truth is, Our kids already know when we disapprove. We don't have to say a word, and they know. What they need to know is when they've done something genuinely good that we approve. 
And so as I've looked back on my own failures as a father, one of the big differences I, I, in my own parenting is when I started praising my children for a job well done and laying off the criticism because they already know when they're not meeting the mark. What they need to know is that their father approves of them and, you know, welcomes the good job they're doing. Tony, on that note, uh, we're going to have to end it there. I hope we can talk again soon. Good luck with the book. I hope everybody reads it. Thank you, Frank. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. The book is called I, Citizen. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.